What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, Danny, remember when President Biden came out and said that the Afghanistan withdrawal was an extraordinary success? I do. That great moment of presidential truth-telling? Well, the Biden administration is now trying to convince us that the supply chain crisis and all the inflation that we're experiencing are extraordinary successes as well. Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary back from parental leave, was on State of the Union on CNN, and here's how he explained it. Demand is off the charts. Retail sales are through the roof. And if you think about those images of uh, ships, for example, waiting at anchor on the West Coast, you know, every one of those ships uh, is full of record amounts of goods that Americans are buying uh, because demand is up, because income is up, uh, because the president has successfully guided this economy out of the teeth of a terrifying recession. So, Danny, basically the message is empty store shelves, $5 gas, your home heating bills going through the roof, Johnny can't get the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip for Christmas. These are all signs of extraordinary success of the Biden economic policies. What do you think? What movie was that from? That was Eddie Murphy. That was Eddie Murphy. It was. (laughs) Kung Fu grip. Let's get that clip, actually. Christmas is around the corner, and I ain't gonna have no money to buy my son the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. Oh, God, I love that movie. So... I think, Mark, that you have a real basic failure to understand. <laughs> we have, Mark, a national obesity crisis. We have a national obesity crisis, mm-hmm. and less food on the shelves is going to help with that. We have a problem with climate, and higher gas prices is going to help with that. And you know what? We are too gosh darn materialistic in this country. We should have less stuff. I think. Pete is just as smart as can be. (laughs) He's really solving the kinds of problems that need to be solved in this nation. We need less stuff. Yeah, exactly. Here's the problem. Americans think we need more stuff because they are ready to spend. They have got cash in hand and they are ready to spend, but the supply isn't there. Now, why do we have so much money? Because for the past year and a half, the government has been to doing use, nothing. To use a phrase that I have adopted on all sorts of formats, including on Fox News, which I got from you, shoving cash out of helicopters yeah. and shoveling it into the economy. I mean, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars starting in early 2020. And then Joe Biden shows up. And the first thing he does is another one point nine trillion dollars in social spending disguised as covid relief, pushing more money in and extending unemployment benefits, paying people more not to work than to work. And so what's happened is we have huge, huge pent-up savings. The savings rate in this country is at record levels. People have cash to spend, but they are also not in such a rush to get back to work because of those savings. They want to see, is there going to be another variant other than the Delta variant that's going to uh, keep us in our homes and all the rest of it? And so they're ready to spend, but businesses can't find workers because there are 11 million A record, 11 million unfilled jobs in this country. Businesses want to hire 11 million people and cannot find 11 million people to show up for work. That's 
where we are. It is staggering, and I know everybody has an anecdote to back this up. You know, whether it's a, a small business owner who can't find people to work, whether it's schools that can't find teachers and coaches, whether it's factories that can't find people to work, airlines who can't get their employees to come back. And I think it's not just one factor, obviously, but it's definitely having an impact on people's lives. And I think that the response from our Congress, which is to solve every problem with money, to socially re-engineer our nation with vast quantities of cash, is going to be corrosive. And the funniest thing about this is, anecdotally, if you think about your life lessons, who are the people who earn our contempt the people who don't work, trust fund babies, people who have too much money and not enough to do with it, people who haven't earned their success. This will, at the end of the day, end up changing the character of America in ways that I think we have not yet begun to contemplate. I agree with you. People have used the analogy, when your computer shuts down, it takes a while to start up. Like, it doesn't just come right back on the way you left it. You know, all the different programs have to start starting up. And so this is just the natural restarting of the economy, and it's staggered, and it's not coming back all that quickly. But these problems we are experiencing are a direct result of deliberate policy choices being made by this administration. When the demand side is overheating and the supply side can't keep up, you don't pour more government cash into the demand side to overheat the demand side of the economy. You wait for the supply side to keep up. You know, gasoline prices in some place in the country, $5 a gallon. It's gone up a dollar a gallon on average since Biden's election. And if people think that's not going to be felt at Thanksgiving when we all hop in our cars to go visit our families, that's going to be a big deal. And it's the same thing, by the way, with natural gas, where those prices have gone up enormously. The price of everything has gone up. But this is a direct result of the Biden administration's war on fossil fuels. And when you declare on the campaign trail and then as president that you are going to tax and regulate an industry out of business, guess what? They're not going to produce more fuel. There are right now half as many oil wells in America producing oil as there were in 2019. Why do you think our national security advisor was in Saudi Arabia recently? Exactly. Think he was there to talk human rights? No. Literally, we're back in the 70s where the president is begging OPEC, a foreign oil cartel, to produce more oil. If you're an environmentalist, does it matter from a climate change perspective if the oil is produced in Saudi Arabia or the U.S.? No. But the point is, is that people are not going to drill new wells and they're not going to increase production. Wall Street banks are not going to invest in fossil fuels. Many of them are divesting themselves from fossil fuels because of the Biden administration's policies. And so it's not just cyclical gas prices that we've always had that are always been volatile. This is an actual deliberate decision of the Biden administration to declare war in an industry. And when the federal government declares war in an industry, it stops producing. And so we're paying more at the pump because of the policies of the administration. There are less workers because of the policies of the Biden administration. And we've got to stop the war on fossil fuels. We've got to stop paying people not to work. We've got to stop shoving government cash out of helicopters into the American economy. And with that very fine pronouncement of the necessary policies, Mark is not announcing that he's running for president, unfortunately. Instead, we're going to introduce our guest, Mike Strain, who all of you know, because he's been on with us a bunch of times, is the director of economic studies at the American Enterprise Institute. A fine institute. A fine public policy research institution. He's a columnist for Bloomberg, and he's just one of the most sort of lucid, cogent explainers of what is going on in our economy, which is what we need right now. Here's our interview. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. 
Thanks so much for having me back. It's always great to come on. Well, we're glad to have you. So at the opening of the podcast, we played this quote from Pete Buttigieg on CNN's State of the Union. He basically says that all the problems we're having in the economy are a sign of the extraordinary success of their policies. He said demand is off the charts. Retail sales are through the roof. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry for laughing. It's like, you know, bizarro world. It is. The images of ships, for example, waiting at harbor in the West Coast. Every one of those ships is full of goods that the American people are buying because demand is up and income is up and the president successfully guided this economy out of the teeth of a terrifying recession. So we should be grateful for $5 gas and empty store shelves, Michael. This is a sign of success, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I certainly uh, wouldn't characterize it that way. I do think that Secretary Buttigieg is right that the administration's policies have increased consumer demand for goods and services, particularly for goods. But what I think he is missing is that because the economy can only produce so much and because supply chain restrictions have hindered the economy's ability to import, the kind of marginal dollar of economic stimulus from President Biden's program is not showing up in more consumption. It's showing up in higher prices. So what they've done is they've pushed the economy too far, and that's leading to you know, pretty substantial price increases. Let me push back on you a little bit because they've increased demand, but that increased demand isn't because the economy is revving up and people are getting back to work and they're making money and they're producing more stuff. And so they have money to spend. It's because we've been shoveling government money out of helicopters for the last year and a half. So people's savings rates are up. Isn't that why? I mean, the demand is there because of government checks to get people through the pandemic, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think it's certainly both. So, you know, let's go back to the month of January 2021 when President Biden was inaugurated and take a look at at the economy at that point. Congress had just passed and President Trump had signed in December a $900 billion economic stimulus and relief law. That law, you know, had some good things and some bad things, but pretty strong case could be made that we did need a little something that winter. Households were sitting on well over $2 trillion of excess savings. Part of that excess savings, Mark, is exactly from what you said, government checks during the pandemic. But part of that excess savings was also driven by the fact that people just weren't spending all that much money in 2020, and so they were saving more money than normal. So you had this situation where households were sitting on a bunch of cash. We had just signed a stimulus law of almost a trillion dollars. Now President Biden comes in. What's the kind of outlook for the economy? Well, vaccines are starting to come into wide distribution, or at least that's on the horizon. Lots of talk about a lot of activity in the summer, pent-up household demand, et cetera, et cetera. So Demand was going to come back even in the absence of any additional government spending, government transfer payments to households. Standing in January of 2021, I did an estimate that the economy was, you know, maybe $300 billion short of where it should have been. And into that $300 billion hole, President Biden poured $1.9 trillion. We would have had a problem of too much demand and too little supply, even if that $1.9 trillion stimulus hadn't passed. But passing that $1.9 trillion stimulus really took what would have been a moderate problem, turned it into a big problem. 
the composition of that stimulus law was also problematic. Not only did it boost consumer demand, but it also held the labor market back by making it much more financially rewarding not to work, by increasing the generosity of unemployment benefits. So you're holding the supply side of the economy back by keeping workers on the sidelines at the same time that you're giving the demand side of the economy a big push. And you're doing that in a macroeconomic environment where you already have strong economic demand and where any reasonable expectation for the 12-month outlook was that demand would grow even stronger. So it was not only a bad idea, but it was a, you know, pretty clearly a bad idea at the time. So you set me up perfectly, Mike. I want to talk a little bit. That's what we're all about. (laughs) It is. Every day, everybody wakes up and thinks, how can I set Danny up perfectly? And thank you for that, both of you. So the question that I really wanted to ask about is this unbelievably large number of jobs, and yet this unbelievably large number of people who aren't working. And one of the reasons for this, obviously, is that people are being paid not to work. You know, if I can make more not working than I do working, it's kind of understandable. You know, that's the story of the European Union. (laughs) But obviously, a second factor that is being cited sort of popularly is, well, people aren't going back to work because they don't have enough childcare. Oh, and by the way, the other reason people aren't going back to work is they spent the last year sitting, staring at themselves on Zoom, and they've decided working sucks. (laughs) I hate my job. I'm going to quit. And of course, the data from last August about the number of people quitting their jobs was staggering. So if I may coin a phrase, what the hell is going on? (laughs) Well, it didn't take a year of staring at myself on Zoom for me to daydream frequently about retirement. (laughs) And how old are you, dude? (laughs) (laughs) Too young to be daydreaming about retirement, I think. Yep. Um, You know, there, there are a number of factors going on, I think. If you look at the rate at which people are participating in the workforce, that has basically shown no improvement since the summer. And that's a big, big problem. The demand for workers on the part of employers is as strong as it has been in decades. By some measures, the demand side of the labor market is as strong as it's been since we started keeping modern statistics following the end of World War II. Isn't it like 11 million unfilled jobs? Yeah, there are around 11 million unfilled jobs. The number of unemployed workers for every open job is at a record low rate. And, you know, probably the, the most convincing statistic you can look at to demonstrate that employers do want workers is wages. Right. Wages in the leisure and hospitality industry are growing at around an 11% annual rate. That's really, really fast wage growth. Now, that's nominal wage growth. So the increases in consumer prices we're seeing are eating into those wage gains. But, you know, it's pretty common to hear employers complain, oh, we can't find workers and, you know, there's nobody out there who meets our needs. This is a perennial concern for businesses. You know, typically that concern I think is really overplayed because when businesses are complaining about not being able to find workers, they're also not increasing their wage offerings. But that's not happening now. Average wages throughout the economy are growing at a 5% annual rate. And again, wages in the leisure and hospitality sector are growing at 11% annual rate. So businesses really are putting their money where their mouths are. 
And when they say they want workers, that's not just something they're saying. I mean, they're ponying up and they're paying higher wages in order to get those workers. Danny, to your question, I think a variety of things are happening. I do think that concern about the pandemic is keeping some workers on the sidelines. You can see a pretty strong correlation between the number of people who say they're out looking for a job and kind of spikes in COVID cases. That's becoming less and less of an issue, of course, but I think that's still a lingering issue. I think childcare issues are a real factor. You know, I have uh, two young kids, and every time we get an email from their school, my heart stops for a few seconds because, you know, I'm worried that that's going to be the day that the classroom closes for two weeks, and, you know, we're going to have to scramble to figure out how to make it through that two-week period with our kids at home. That, I think, is keeping some people out of the workforce. I do think that we're seeing an uptick in early retirements. People who are 62, 63 years old who have enough money in the bank, we're planning on retiring at 65, and they're just saying, I'm just not going to go back. And I think that's causing an issue as well. But when you look at workforce participation among people who are plausibly too young to retire, people under the age of 55, let's say, you're not seeing a substantial increase in their workforce participation rates either. And so we can't just blame this on retirement. In addition, when you look at the difference between parents and non-parents in terms of their workforce participation, that difference is not large enough to allow you to say, oh, well, you know, child care really is the driving factor here. I think that the generosity of unemployment benefits and the generosity of cash payments to households really do explain a lot of what is happening. To put that in some context, on average, an unemployed worker gets about $350 a week in unemployment benefits during normal times. President Biden added $300 to that. A week. So that's nearly doubling the generosity of unemployment benefits. And at $650 a week, you know, around half of workers had a higher income from unemployment benefits than they would have had from working. That's going to keep people out of the workforce. In addition, all the money that we gave people not connected to unemployment benefits, just in terms of all the cash payments and stimulus payments, has led households to have a lot of money in the bank. If you look at the bottom 40% of households by income, they're sitting on over $300 billion of excess savings. Now, again, not all of that is because of public policy. Some of that is just because people didn't spend a lot of money last year, but a lot of it is due to, to stimulus payments as well. And so, you know, I think what's happening is that workers are on the sidelines because they can afford to be on the sidelines. I don't think that that's going to be true for the next 12 months or anything like that, but I think that has been a big part of the story for sure over the past six months or so, and I think it's going to be a part of the story for the next couple months to come. So just really a quick follow-up. So you present as pretty established the notion that when people are making more money not working than they will be, or even the same not working than they will be working, then they don't go back to work. And, you know, you did a really nice little Q&A for AEI's blog, and you were asked, is this a conservative economist, conservative pundit sort of a thing, or is it real? And you said, you know, it's really only controversial on Twitter. It is absolutely real. Now, I know that you and Mark will both forgive me, but in the New York Times, they argue that, in fact, the states that cut off additional unemployment benefits 
didn't really see any uptick in employment. So what's the truth? Is Mike Strain right, or are these people at the New York Times right? And also, just to add to Danny's question, the Biden administration claims that, well, the enhanced unemployment expired in the middle of September and people aren't returning to work, so therefore proof that that's not the driving factor. Yes. So that's a great question. Let me answer it by talking about kind of three different pieces of evidence. So one piece of evidence is the half-century that the United States experienced from the 1970s until the onset of the pandemic in the spring of 2020. The overwhelming consensus of that evidence is that when unemployment benefits become more generous, people stay unemployed for longer. In addition, when unemployment benefits become more generous, people are more likely to become unemployed. That, I think, is a widely held consensus view. It's the kind of thing you would find in textbooks and review articles and things of that nature. It's the kind of thing that the Obama administration just took as a given when trying to design the stimulus when President Obama took office in 2009. That's one bucket of evidence. Another bucket of evidence is from the spring and summer of 2020. As part of the CARES Act, which was the big pandemic economic relief law that was signed by President Trump in March of 2020, unemployment benefits were increased by $600. So people were getting, on average, $950 a week. Studies of the effect of that do not find that those unemployment benefits led people to stay unemployed for longer. And the third piece of evidence are studies of what happened in August and September of 2021, last month and the month before. So, you know, how to make sense of this? I think it's pretty easy to explain why generous unemployment benefits did not lead people to remain unemployed for longer in the spring and summer of 2020. It's because we were in the middle of a pandemic. People were being told to stay home. Businesses were not hiring. People really didn't want to go out and look for jobs because they were trying not to have contact with other people. And so if the jobs aren't there, then increasing the generosity of unemployment benefits you know, really doesn't do anything. That, I think, explains what happened in the spring and summer of 2020. The question about what happened in the summer and fall of 2021, the current period we're in, can then be viewed as a simple question. Is the economy in the summer and fall of 2021 more like the 50 years from the 70s until the beginning of the pandemic or more like the spring and summer of 2020? There are elements of both, but I think pretty clearly it's much more like the pre-pandemic economy. And so we would expect that unemployment benefits would have the normal effects that they typically have during the last several months, because the last several months were pretty close to a normal economy. And so I think it's safe to kind of write off what happened in the spring and summer of 2020 when the pandemic hit as an aberration. We shouldn't conclude from that, that in a normal economy or in an economy that's really close to normal, that unemployment benefits don't discourage work. There have been some studies that have looked at what happened in August, this past August, August of 2021, and I think that's what the New York Times is referring to. And, you know, I don't agree with their characterization of that evidence. I think that evidence does suggest that states 
that opted out of these extra generous benefits in June really did see employment increase. But the evidence is mixed. What I would say is two things. One, you know, we have like a month or two of data, and I don't think it's safe to conclude anything really from empirical estimates of what has happened in the past few months one way or the other. So we need to wait and see after we have some more data come in. And secondly, I think any study that looks at the effect of unemployment benefits on employment from this past summer and the current fall really needs to take into account how much money households have in the bank. So I think that's playing a role as well. So studies that look at the last month or two, you know, let's wait to see some more evidence, how it comes in. But I think, you know, my takeaway from the evidence that exists is that unemployment benefits have been keeping people on the sidelines. And then the real question is, how seriously should we take evidence from when the pandemic began? And I think that was a pretty unusual period, and we shouldn't try and generalize from it. So let's talk about the effect of the vaccines and the ongoing COVID fear. So, I mean, as you say, if there's trillions of dollars in excess savings, then it's not going to switch on a dime the second the unemployment benefits cut out, right? People are still worried about Delta. There's still hesitancy about uh, all that. And then there's also a couple of Biden administration policies I wanted to get your thoughts on about whether they're exacerbating this. So you've got the Delta variant coming up, and then President Biden goes out and gives a speech and says, the vaccines are wearing off and we are all going to need boosters. And so in September, on a date certain, we're going to authorize boosters for everybody and you can go get them. And then the FDA says, eh, not really, only people over 65 and seriously ill people. And so the message to the American people was, your vaccines are not working as well as they used to. You need a booster shot, but you can't have one. <laughs> do you think that has any impact? Um, yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, I do. You, know, you can see in the data, so there's a government survey that asked people some pretty basic questions about, are you unable to work due to COVID? Different people are going to interpret that question in different ways, but, you know, it's a pretty straightforward question. And, and if you look at the data, you see that the number of people who say they're unable to work due to COVID has been dropping pretty dramatically since the summer, really since the late spring of 2020, since after the lockdowns were lifted. But, you know, periods of time where there are surges, you see people saying that they're unable to work due to COVID. And I think a lot of that is driven by people's perceived risk of catching COVID. And so, you know, I think that the administration should be sticking to the facts and telling people what they need to know. It's certainly not misleading anybody. But I worry that sometimes the message coming from the administration seems not to really be consistent. And <laughs> you are so genteel. <laughs> then let me ask you just a quick follow-up on that. So the other policy the administration is pushing are these vaccine mandates, right, that they're urging businesses and they're for the military, they're requiring it. You see police departments and first responders and hospitals imposing vaccine mandates. Businesses are being pressured to impose vaccine mandates. And so at a time when there is a worker shortage, they're being forced to fire workers who are willing to come in and work. Putting aside the healthcare questions, which, you know, we had Scott Gottlieb on who made his case for some local mandates, but what is the economic effect of, in a massive labor shortage, forcing people to get fired because they won't get a vaccine? You're definitely making it harder for businesses to attract workers. Certainly, you know, that varies in different parts of the country, you know, so probably 
not a huge effect in major urban areas where there are pretty high vaccination rates, probably a larger effect in parts of the country where there are lower vaccination rates. I think that this is a, a business decision. And I don't think the president of the United States should be telling businesses that they have to require their employees to be vaccinated. I also don't think the governor of Texas should be telling businesses that they are not allowed to tell their employees that they need to get vaccinated. I think for some businesses, it's in the best interest of the business to have those mandates. For other businesses, it's not. It should be a decision left to businesses. And if we leave that decision to businesses, that's going to help the economy recover faster. So this has been so fascinating. Let's talk just quickly about supply chains, because I think that as we creep towards the holiday season, there's going to be a growing hysteria. Pete Buttigieg's wonderful reassurances notwithstanding, there's going to be a growing hysteria about empty shelves, about the inability to procure things, and an inability to get the things that you want to get at a price that you want to pay. So supply chain slash inflation. Underlying cause, question mark, and when are we going to see some relief for this, do you think? And how political are the causes? Well, so I think that supply chain issues are going to linger for sure. And they're not going to be resolved by Christmas. Even if the administration takes really extraordinary action by calling in the National Guard to unload the container ship or whatever some of the more aggressive measures are being discussed, You know, that would certainly help, but these supply chain issues are baked into the cake at this point, and they're not going to go away for some period of time. If you you know, there was a recent survey of retailers just asking their expectations for how long these supply chain issues would last, and something like a third thought that they would last for more than a year. About a fifth said that they would last for 10 to 12 months. So that's well over half who think that this is going to be an issue for at least 10 months. And then, of course, Christmas is two months away. Prices are going to remain elevated throughout 2022. I expect that the rate of price inflation is going to drop over the course of 2022. So we'll have slower inflation a year from now than we have now. But inflation is going to be well above the Fed's target for 2022. I think that's just baked into the cake as well. You know, when you look at the prices that producers have to pay to put goods on the shelves, those are substantially elevated. And so I think it's just unrealistic to expect that those prices aren't going to be passed along to consumers and unrealistic to expect that that process is going to, you know, only take a couple of months. And so, you know, I think Christmas is going to be an issue and it's going to be a political issue. And I think inflation is going to be an issue in 2022. That, I think, is all baked into the cake. A real question is how quickly can the labor market come back? And the longer we are in this period, the harder it's going to be to get workers off the sidelines and back into work, which is why I think, you know, a big part of the reason why I was so worried about the American Rescue Plan back in January of 2021 when President Biden took office. But Is it a smart idea? I mean, they're talking now... They're talking now a $2 trillion spending plan. Is that a smart move, given what shuffling government money into the economy is already doing? Do we need more? I think that would be a really a really bad thing to do. And there, there are probably some targeted things that make sense that should be debated. But when you look at what the Democrats have been working off of, and obviously their plans are in a great deal of flux, but when you look at what they've been working off of, they want to spend a lot of money right away. And... 
they want to pay for a lot of it with tax increases, but those tax increases don't really kick in for a few more years. So in 2022, 2023, there would be substantial government stimulus that would not be offset by tax increases, which is exactly the opposite of what we need. You know, right now we need less demand and more supply. And what the Democrats want to do is have more demand and less supply. And that just doesn't make any sense in an economy with excess demand and restricted supply. So speaking of supply and demand, I actually do have another question. How big a factor is the Biden climate change driven fossil fuel war that is driving up prices at the tank? How big a factor is that in all of the economic strife that we're seeing? So that is a factor for sure. Nothing that I've talked about so far has really factored that in because something that's pretty standard for economists to do when looking at issues of price inflation and looking at these sorts of macroeconomic issues is to actually kind of ignore the effects of energy prices. And the Why? Reason, because those are historically so volatile. So the question you want to ask is what's happening to you know, kind of underlying prices in the economy? What's happening to the prices of a broad range of goods and services? And when you include energy prices in that picture, and also when you include food prices in that picture, what you see is a much noisier picture. So to kind of extract the signal from the noise, it's pretty standard to look at goods and services other than food and energy. When you add in food and energy, the problem looks even worse. And increases in energy prices are a real threat to workers' wage gains. From the perspective of a worker, a household, it doesn't matter where price increases are coming from. It just matters that their paycheck can't go as far. And what's happening with energy prices is making paychecks go less far. So final question from me. You know, we've got 11 million unfilled jobs. Half of small businesses say they can't find workers to fill the jobs. We've got dramatic increase, doubling of retirements compared to pre-pandemic levels. Lots of workers staying on the sidelines. Question one is, are those workers, other than the retirees, are those workers going to come back? And two, if we have so many unfilled jobs, isn't this a time where we should actually be increasing legal immigration and bringing in workers? These are great questions. Let me answer your first question first. I think the answer to your first question is that we should expect workforce participation to basically return to where it was before the pandemic, except for early retirements, and there are going to be a good number of those. The thing that makes me optimistic about that is that the kind of demand and supply imbalance that's plaguing the economy right now, I think will be temporary. It might take a year for supply chain issues to work themselves out, but those are going to work themselves out. It might take several more months of households burning through their excess savings to kind of return to a normal pace of consumption, but that's going to happen. At some point, those savings are going to be depleted. If you look at the labor market, the expanded generosity of unemployment benefits ended about a month ago. Childcare issues will resolve themselves, provided that the Delta spike is kind of the last spike in the pandemic. And now we have a great therapeutic for Merck and the vaccines were. So assuming that the pandemic gets under control here, which all signs suggest it will, that should ease childcare constraints and also anybody who's not participating in the workforce out of concern about COVID, that's going to become less of an issue as well. So 
you know, I think we are going to see an easing of supply restrictions and we're going to see a moderation of demand over the course of the next year, which means that these problems should kind of work themselves out and that should result in people going back to work. The reason that I'm nervous about that is the following. If you look at economic output, if you look at the amount of goods and services that the economy is producing, it looks like there was no pandemic. GDP is back to where it would have been without a pandemic. If you were standing in the year 2019 and you said, let's try and forecast what GDP will look like in October of 2021, where we are right now, that is where GDP is. GDP is at that point, even though there are six or seven million fewer workers in the labor market than there should be. So businesses have figured out how to produce goods and services with fewer workers. They definitely want workers. You know, they want them and they're willing to pay for them. But the U.S. economy has adapted to this when measured by the level of economic output. Part of me is concerned that at some point, businesses are just going to say, okay, well, this is the new normal. And yes, we have to pay these really high wages, but we've figured out how to get by with fewer workers. And then labor demand starts to dry up. And you have a lot of workers on the sidelines who maybe do want to come back. They were on the sidelines because unemployment benefits were too generous. They were on the sidelines because they had a bunch of money in the bank in part from pandemic stimulus checks. They weren't expecting to leave the workforce forever. They just were taking some time on the sidelines because they could afford it. But this burning hot labor demand might not be a permanent feature. And the delay in returning to the workforce, they may actually be eliminating their jobs. Yeah, exactly. And that's a big, big, big risk. And so I worry about that for sure. On your second question, yeah, absolutely. I think we should be increasing the level of immigration. I think that's true because of the current state of the business cycle, because businesses can't find workers here today in October of 2021. But I also think it's true even apart from that. I think if you look at the kind of 20-year outlook for the U.S. economy, the economy would be a lot stronger for a variety of reasons if we had higher levels of legal immigration. Amen to that. Mike, you have been more than generous with your time, and this was a real lesson in smart economics, which I wish our government would listen to. So <laughs> thanks from us and with the hope and the prayer that somebody in the White House, maybe even Pete Buttigieg, is listening and will learn something. <laughs> thanks, Mike. Well, thanks for having me on. It's always fun. So I'll go back to what I began with, and I think Mike has confirmed it in what he told us, is that a lot of this is driven by policy decisions being made by the Biden administration. We talked about the vaccine mandates, which are pushing people out of work. I think a lot of people, they have cash, they're worried about COVID, and the Biden administration is exacerbating those fears by saying that, you know, you need a booster, your vaccines aren't working as well. Oh, and by the way, businesses, you have workers, but guess what? If only 60% of your workforce is vaccinated, then you have to fire 40% of them. Yeah. That's something we can't afford at this time. So in all these areas, this administration is just exacerbating. And it's just, you know, it's one more self-inflicted crisis after the next. Afghanistan, self-inflicted crisis, the border crisis, self-inflicted crisis. The labor crisis we're having in the supply chain crisis is also a self-inflicted crisis. They are deliberately making policy decisions that are making our lives worse every single day. Is that an exaggeration? Uh, no, I think this administration is doing a remarkably 
bad job. And I will say, and I, I, you know, for those of you who listen to the podcast, you know, I think we were hopeful that they would not be this bad. Joe Biden is not there. And they have drifted so far left that I think that it is shocking to a lot of, frankly, a lot of Democrats. Look, you know, a bunch of this started during the Trump administration, this excessive spending, this anti-trade position, but not all of it did. And the problem is that all of these things just feel like gross political discussions that happen in Washington, but they're having an impact on people's real lives. When you can't afford food, when your dollar is not going as far as it used to, when you can't buy basic G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. When you can't buy G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip, then that starts to impact people's lives. And when you layer that on top of the foreign policy crises that we've talked about, when you layer that on top of the war on civil discourse that we are all suffering through, when you layer that on top of a collapsing education system that no longer teaches anybody anything, when you layer that on top... Parents aren't allowed to go to school board meetings and... When parents get arrested at school board meetings, as happened in our home state of Virginia, for complaining about their daughter being being attacked and raped, exactly. Another story, but still something very much on our minds. When the statue of Thomas Jefferson is being taken down because it makes people feel badly in the city of New York, then you know we are really in a screwed up place. And as Mike said, a lot of this is baked into the cake and it's not going to get better anytime soon. And when an administration has declared a war on fossil fuels that is raising gas prices to $5 a gallon in some parts of the country, your home heating bills for the half of the country that uses natural gas is going to be up 30% in the Midwest. It's supposed to be up 50% this winter. People are going to feel that just another layer of the disaster that the American people are going through. But the good news is we've got a great guest coming up to talk about that. We've got Bjorn Lomberg coming to the podcast to talk about climate. In the run-up to the huge conference that's going to take place in the U.K. Exactly. And for those of you who don't know him, his columns have been in the journal over the last few weeks. He's a terrific writer. He's a, a Danish environmentalist and the author of a very controversial but famous book called The Skeptical Environmentalist. He's going to be an absolutely amazing guest. I'm really excited for that podcast. So tune in next week for Bjorn Lomberg. And if you like this podcast, please like it on Apple Podcasts, rate us, review us, hopefully well. If you don't like Danny, that's okay. You don't have to mention that. You can just talk about me. <laughs> Yes, that's that's so much how it is, Mark. <laughs> if you like Danny and you don't like me, then say that too. Well, of course. The, Obviously. The, the, my, my, we respect the views of the minority. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Bye. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 